welcome to Simple Sarah's Horror Menagerie. I'm your host, Sarah Sin, tackling horror movies, peeling back the layers, and taking a deeper dive into them. Again, on the show, I don't just discuss my love of horror movies. I like to bring in the aspect and perspective of horror in history, how horror movies tend to reflect society's fears. And since I am a psychology major, I like to bring this aspect and perspective in as well and see how the horror movie I'm focusing on reflects psychology and mental health in any way. So, as some of you may know, and not all of you may know, um, this hasn't been the best week for me, and this isn't even work-related or stress-related in that sense, but um, I had to put my dog down on Wednesday. Um, I've had her for 17 and a half years, my little dog Roxy. She lived to be 18 years of age. She had a really good life, and she was loved. She was my loyal companion, my family, my friend, and I had to make the hardest decision ever, which was to put her down. She was old, she was having troubles, um, and I knew it was be- what was best for her. Um, it wasn't easy for me, but I knew she was ready to go, so I had to put my loyal companion down of 17 and a half years this week and it has been a really rough week because of that she you know she was family um I I say this all the time I feel bad for people who can only look at their animals as pets or possessions I was raised that they have a soul they have a spirit they have a purpose and they are not your pets they are your companions they are your family and you mourn them the same way you would mourn any human. So it's just been a really rough week, like coming home from work and not seeing her there was really tough. Um, as weird as it sounds, um, she was so old that she started to lose control of her bowels and, you know, she would always leave a mess. But even waking up in the morning, walking into the bathroom with no mess to clean up was hard. Because I wake, I would wake up every morning and go, oh, got to clean up after her. You know, she's old, but no more. But it was still hard. Looking at her beds have been hard. So I had to say goodbye to my first baby. And it's just been a really hard week because of it. So I have decided um, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off. Um, the show is my therapy, and I love doing the show. However, school is taking a little bit more priority right now because with summer semesters it's 10 weeks of school instead of 15 so everything's kind of cramped together and I have a lot of work to do and I was really excited for this class until I realized it's not really what I thought it was going to be and it's going to be a lot harder on me so I just said with the fact that I had to let my dog go and with school I need to take some time off away from the show to really get a head start on schoolwork and I just need to kind of take some time to heal because it's been hard. That's all I can say is that it's just been really hard because Roxy was my my world. My daughter's my world too, but it's just the fact that Roxy was my my family. She was my loyal companion. I mean, this dog saw me at my worst and loved me unconditionally and was loyal to me. I mean, I got her when I was in my early 20s and I was a really shitty human being then, but she stuck by my side when a lot of people didn't. She did. 
So it's just been, it's just been hard. And I miss her. But I know it was time for her to go. She, like I said, she lived 18 long years and 17 and a half of those years, I got to call her my best friend. So I decided after this episode, I do need to take some time off. And the only reason why I'm doing this weekend is because, well, my theme is around Father's Day and this is Father's Day weekend. So I should probably put an episode up. But after that, I'm not sure how long I'm going to take probably a week or a couple of weeks off, like two to three weeks off from the show. And then after that, at least for July and August, I'm probably only going to be able to put out two episodes a month. And then once fall starts um, and I get back into the 15 week of school routine, I'll, I'll get back up to the three episodes a week. But anyways, I'm going to move on to the last movie for the theme of Daddy Knows Best, Bad Dads Within Horror Movies with 1987's The Stepfather, directed by Joseph Rubin, starring Terry O'Quinn as Jerry Blake, Jill Sholin as Stephanie Main, Shelley Hack as Susan Blake, Charles Lanier as Dr. Bonnerant, sorry if I said that wrong, Stephen Shellen as Jim Ogilvie, Stephen E. Miller as Al Brennan. So for Horn History, um, we definitely got like the idea that you really don't like, do you really truly know someone, like, in this fear for children, like, um, the fear of the people your mom might date? Um, definitely, like, the loss of, quote, traditional family values, like, people straying away from, quote, tradition, you know, that nuclear family, which is a mom and a dad and the children. And I would also say, like, fear of your neighbor. Like, do you really know your neighbor? Do you really know who they are? Do you really know what happens behind closed doors? Like, this happy, safe suburban life may not be as safe as you think. Psychology and mental health, we got narcissistic personality disorder, deception, dishonesty, manipulation, being misleading, controlling, cunning, antisocial personality disorder with psychopathic or sociopathic tendencies, um, impulsiveness, misdirection, vulnerability, OCD, and being a perfectionist. So what is this movie about? Jerry is an average man with an average job in an average house. He lives the American dream with his wife and stepdaughter, but deep down, he isn't such an average man. Jerry marries widows and moves in with them and their children before murdering them, moving to a new town and starting all over again. But this family is different. His stepdaughter has a hunch that he may not be the man he seems to be, while also unaware that his last victim, his last wife's brother, has figured things out and is hot on Jerry's trail. Moving on to the subgenre. So this movie, like a lot of horror movies, can be seen as a slasher flick. You know, it could be put under many subgenres, one being the slasher flick. You know, people are getting murdered, picked off one by one, and the opening scene is completely unforgettable and gruesome. However, we don't have a masked killer. Like, we're not trying to figure out who's behind that mask or, you know, who the killer is. And this movie doesn't have, like, supernatural elements within it. You know, we know who the killer is, but what we're trying to figure out is the why behind the killings. This movie is very psychologically driven, which is why I would actually put this movie under the psychological horror subgenre. This is a real person committing horrific murders. So I'll go over the definition of psychological horror. Psychological horror. 
This subgenre feels the most realistic because it builds the horror by playing on people's fears, anxieties, and phobias. These movies are designed to make the viewer feel as if this could happen to them. In addition, a big plot point in many of these movies are people slowly going crazy due to a variety of reasons such as isolation and war. These movies tend to focus on people being the monsters over creatures or the supernatural. So what I would like to do is really talk about Jerry, the character of Jerry. He's such a complex character. He's a perfectionist, narcissistic, has OCD, as well as probably suffering from antisocial personality disorder with either sociopathic tendencies or psychopathic tendencies. This whole movie is basically a character study of this man. There's just a lot to unravel within the character himself. So my plan is to like kind of go over a couple of the disorders I believe Jerry suffers from, you know, symptoms, traits of these disorders. Then I'll go over a scene and kind of describe what's going on with that scene and like what traits and symptoms may be showing in that scene, like why he's acting that way. And then once I'm done with all the Jerry scenes, I'm going to go over a few of Jim Ogilvy scenes because he's the one who's like hot on Jerry's trail and kind of been figuring out what's going on since Jerry's last victim was actually Jim's sister. Then I'm going to try to tie everything together and then maybe try to explain like my own little analysis of why Jerry is the way he is, like what might have happened to him during childhood to affect him this much into his adulthood. So let's start off with narcissistic personality disorder. And this is from um, Psychology Today. The hallmarks of narcissistic personality disorder, NPD, are grandiosity, a lack of empathy for other people, and a need for admiration. People with this condition are frequently described as arrogant, self-centered, manipulative, and demanding. They may also have grandiose fa fantasies and may be convinced that they deserve special treatment. So symptoms of you know, NPD, according to Psychology Today, are an inflated sense of self-importance, preoccupation with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love, belief that one is special and can only be understood by or associate with special people or institutions, a need for excessive admiration, a sense of entitlement to special treatment, exploitation of others, a lack of empathy, envy of others or the belief that one is the object of envy, arrogance, haughty behavior, or attitudes. Okay, now moving on to antisocial personality disorder, and this is from the Mayo Clinic. Antisocial personality disorder is a mental health condition in which a person consistently shows no regard for right or wrong and ignores the right and feelings of others. People with APD tend to purposely make others angry or upset and manipulate or treat others harshly or with cruel indifference. They lack remorse and do not regret their behaviors. Symptoms, again, according to Mayo Clinic, ignoring right or wrong, telling lies to take advantage of others, not being sensitive to or respectful of others, using charm or wit to manipulate others for personal gain or pleasure, having a sense of superiority and being extremely opinionated, being hostile, aggressive, violent, or threatening to others, feeling no guilt about harming others, doing dangerous things with no regard for safety or self of others, being irresponsible and failing to fulfill work or financial responsibilities. So you see a lot of these like symptoms, characteristics, and traits throughout the movie when it comes to Jerry, like for, you know, narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder. 
You can also tell that he is like OCD, like needs things done a certain way to his liking. And he's a perfectionist, like things need to be done in order or have order. So as I go over each scene, I will kind of point out these aspects after I go over the scene. So first things first, let me go over the opening scene, because in those first few moments, we learn pretty much everything we need to know about Jerry. So we open on, you know, the street of a nice suburban neighborhood, and we close in on one specific house. We see a guy in the bathroom. He has a beard, mustache, glasses, like shaggy hair, and he's cleaning blood off himself. He takes a shower and then proceeds to cut his hair, shave his beard and mustache, remove his glasses, and I'm pretty sure he puts, like, contact lenses in, colored contact lenses in, and puts, like, this nice, like, suit-like outfit on. He walks down the hall, down the stairs, and we see blood on the walls. Jerry, like, picks up a toy off the ground, and he, like, picks up the phone and puts it back on the receiver, and then we see the carnage within the living room. There's three bodies, you know, spewed out across the living room, blood everywhere. You know, Jerry walks, you know, right by a fourth body, and it's that of a little girl laying face down. Jerry just nonchalantly walks out the door, walks down the road, jumps on a ferry, and throws his briefcase carrying all his, quote, evidence into the water. And then we jump to one year later. So just by watching the opening scene, like, there's no dialogue whatsoever. You know this isn't, like, you, it's implied that this isn't the first time Jerry has killed and changed his appearance. Like, he has no hesitation. It's very routine-like. You know, he has done this many times before. But the question you ask is, why? So we find out, you know, this one year later, Jerry is married to a woman named Susan who has a teenage daughter named Stephanie. He's a realtor. And one day he's showing a house to a client and he's actually pushing the little girl on a swing in the backyard. Jerry, what grade are you in, Cindy? Cindy, third. Jerry, third grade. I remember when Jill was in third grade. I used to walk her home from school every day. Cindy, who's Jill? Jerry. That's my daughter. Cindy, you said her name was Stephanie. Jerry, right, Stephanie. Cindy, she goes to Oak Ridge High. Jerry, "Uh uh-huh. She's on the student council. She's a straight-A student. I'm very proud of her. So right here, Jerry has a slip-up. Luckily, it was in front of a young child and not an adult. But still, what if it had been an adult? Like, this shows how... Jerry lies, how deceitful he is, but at the same time, very intelligent and able to quick fix the situation. Like he's sly and cunning, quickly covering up his lie without skipping a beat. Like there's no hesitation. He just keeps going, you know, oh, Jill, no, Stephanie. So later on, Jerry and Susan are in bed and they're having this little conversation. Susan, you never talk about your past. Jerry, didn't even exist until I met you. Susan, Past is important. Jerry, try to touch the past. It isn't real. It's just a dream. The only reality is this moment. You and me, here and now. So here we got some misdirection. You know, he's trying to avoid answering the question honestly and chooses to give her an answer he thinks will, you know, make her happy, the answer she wants to hear. While at the same time, he's like being very charming yet cunning. You know, keeping her happy for personal gain, all the while being very manipulating at the same time. So later on, um, Jerry's having a barbecue for his neighbors, 
and he hears some of the men talking, and he, like, walks over, and one of them's reading a newspaper with the headline, Slayer of Family Still Sought. Herb, look at this. I swear they'll print anything to make a buck. Joe, just simply sensationalism, that's all. Herb, it's weird, that's all. Jerry, what's that, Herb? Herb, oh, that guy in Bellevue who killed his whole family, cut him up with knives? Jerry, I don't think I know about that. Herb, happened last year. That's what I was talking about. Now this thing's a year old, and then they go raking it up again. Jerry, this is terrible. Herb, Jerry? Jerry, you all right? Jerry, this kind of thing really gets to me, you know? That a man could be driven to do something like that to his own family, to his children? I don't even want to know about it. Joe, makes you wonder, though, what's it take to make a guy turn his family into gauge murders? Jerry, maybe they disappointed him. So one thing I really like about this scene is that it shows, like, a lot of traits that I was talking about. Um, you know, Jerry's very has a very quick wit. He's intelligent, cunning, like, no, again, no hesitation. Just puts on an act for these men, yet he slips a little bit, revealing to the audience that he may be, you know, unraveling when he mutters, you know, maybe they disappointed him. You know, he holds everything back to just, you know, scream out why they deserve to die. Like, he's holding it back, even though in his mind he wants to scream out, I know why they deserve to die. You know, instead, he composes himself, puts on that charm, and continues to manipulate those around him into thinking, you know, he's such a swell guy. So right after the scene, um, Stephanie is asked to grab ice cream from the basement um, by her mother, Susan. While she's down there, Jerry comes down into the basement. He's clearly frustrated and I think starting to become unhinged. Jerry, all we need is a little order around here. Order! You're a good boy. He's a good boy. Isn't he a good boy? Your daddy's a little angel. Why don't they just leave me alone? Let me out. Let me out. We are going to keep this family together. You had better believe it. And then he notices Stephanie. Oh, hi, honey. Oh, the ice cream. Honey, you know how it is. Being a salesman, you have to smile at everybody all the time, you know? Sometimes I just have to get off by myself, let off some steam, you know? Stephanie. Mm-hmm. Jerry. You know how it is. Stephanie. Sure. I gotta get back or Mom's gonna wonder where I'm at. So, in this scene, we see Jerry slip. But we also get a glimpse, to me at least, I believe, into his childhood. You know, he says he's a good boy. Probably something he heard his mom say or maybe wish he had heard his mom say. But as soon as he sees Stephanie, like, a light switches on him, and he, again, he puts on that character. He puts on a show for her. You know, he's able to turn things around, you know, manipulate, misdirect, be deceptive at the drop of a hat, again, with no hesitation. Like, he's literally becoming unhinged. He's, like, having this, like, frustrated, crazy outburst. And as soon as he sees Stephanie, he's like, oh, got to be in character again. So Stephanie actually tells her therapist that she's wary of Jerry. Like, he creeps her out. So her therapist suggests that, like, he'll call Jerry and talk to him. But Jerry denies the call. So the therapist, Dr. Bonnerant, but I just call him Dr. B because I have a hard time pronouncing that last name. He sets up an appointment to see a house that Jerry is selling in order to kind of, like, feel him out. Jerry, you a family man, Ray? Dr. B, confirmed bachelor. 
How about you, Jerry? Jerry, happily married. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Dr. B, I don't know. I guess it works for some guys. Jerry, what's that? Dr. B, oh, you know, the family, home sweet home, all that crap. Jerry, what line of work you in, Ray, if you don't mind me asking? Dr. B, oh, not at all. I'm in stress management. Jerry, oh, sounds complicated. The kitchen's been remodeled. Dr. B, built-ins. I like this. I try to find ways for employers and employees to get along with less friction. I ask questions. They give me answers. For instance, how do you sleep at night? How do you sleep at night, Jerry? Jerry, I sleep like a baby. Dr. B, you see, that's interesting, because I think there'd be a lot of stress in your line of work. Jerry, I suppose there's a certain degree of stress in every job, Ray. It just depends on how you handle it. Dr. B, which way am I facing? Jerry, north. Come in here, Ray. A great big room for kids to tumble around in. You know, a house like this should really have a family in it. Dr. B, you mean you won't sell it to me because I don't have one? Jerry, oh now, I didn't say that. This is all being remodeled here. Dr. B, you really are a cheerleader for the old traditional values, aren't you, Jerry? Jerry, tradition is important. Dr. B, sounds like you had a strict upbringing. Jerry, you might say that. Let me ask you a question, Ray. Dr. B, sure. Jerry, are you interested in buying a house or in me? Dr. B, sorry, force of habit. My wife gets on me for that all the time. Jerry, I thought you said you were a confirmed bachelor. Dr. B, uh, recently divorced. Jerry, I see. Dr. B, sometimes I forget I'm not married anymore. Jerry, probably just a stress. And then he ends up killing Dr. B. So again, this scene is one that you learn more about Jerry. He had a strict upbringing, you know, and he really pushes for, you know, that quote, traditional family values. You know, again, he's trying to like misdirect, um, you know, by ignoring questions or he's kind of answering these questions vaguely. You know, this is another scene that shows how, again, cunning, calculating and smart he is. He's lying at times, like trying to throw Dr. B off. He's deceptive and dishonest, and he won't hesitate to kill someone in order to keep his secret and his values. So later on, we see Jerry on a ferry, and he's heading to another town. Um, he goes into the bathroom and changes his look once again, and then when he gets off the ferry, he goes to a job interview. Jerry, hi, Bob Hodgkins. Ray, oh, the man who phoned about the job, right? Jerry, that's right. Ray, Ray Charleston. Jerry, how do you do? Ray, you ever sell insurance before? Jerry, back east in Pennsylvania. If there's a policy I haven't sold, I'd like to know what it is. Ray, you specialize in any one area? Jerry, well, I'm pretty comfortable with all of them, but if I had a personal crusade, I guess it's family-related policies, particularly life insurance. Ray, yeah, that's a toughie. People don't like to face the fact that they're going to die someday. Jerry, I know I don't. Ray, death is always something that happens to someone else. Jerry, that's why I really believe I'm protecting the family. Ray, I'm glad to hear you say that, because that's our main objective here. So again, like, this scene is showing, you know, how quickly Jerry can change his persona 
and, you know, change, basically change character and be manipulating while at the same time, you know, he comes off as charming and charismatic and sweet and smart. You know, he knows what to say to get what he wants. And then towards the end of the movie, Susan calls Jerry, like, at his job, um, and then while she's on the phone, she's being told he doesn't work there anymore. And then Jerry comes home. Jerry, hi, honey. Susan, where have you been? Jerry, showing the Morton house to some folks from California. Susan, don't lie to me, Jerry. Jerry, what? Susan, I called your office today. Jerry, I didn't get a message. Susan, of course you didn't get a message. They said you stopped working there several days ago. Jerry, what? Susan, the receptionist said that you left. Jerry, that idiot. That new girl can't. Susan, I never got anyone fired in my life. But that girl, I don't know. Susan, you mean you still work there? Jerry, of course. Where else would I be? Susan, I don't know. I just... I don't know what I thought. I'm sorry. Jerry, this is very upsetting. If Oma and Grace is still there. Susan, no, forget it, honey. Forget it. She probably just got your name wrong or something. Jerry, Hodgkins, what's to get wrong? Susan, what did you say? Jerry, huh? Wait a minute. Who am I here? Susan, Jerry? Jerry, Jerry? Jerry Blake. Thank you, honey. And then that's when he attacks her, and this is the climax of the movie. So here, Jerry's, like, this is Jerry's breaking point where his lies begin to unravel. You know, he's been caught in a lie. You know, if he really wanted to, he probably could have talked his way out of the situation, you know, you know, through lies and manipulation and being misleading. You know, he probably could have got Susan to believe him. But he was planning on killing her and Stephanie anyways, you know, because not all of his kills are impulsive. Some are impulsive, um, but some aren't. But he was already planning on, you know, taking them out. So this scene, like I said, shows him unraveling, but still shows that, like, he's <laughs> manipulating and deceitful. And like I said, he probably could have turned the charm on and made Susan, be Susan believe him. But since he was already planning on killing them, he just decided to take this opportunity and just do it then. So now I'm going to move on to the scenes involving Jim, the brother of Jerry's last wife, you know, deceased wife, which was Jerry, um, sorry, which was Jim's sister. So Jim's actually talking to a reporter named Brennan. Jim, listen to me a minute, all right? Now, three weeks before Morrison killed them, he quit his job, didn't tell anybody, got up every morning, pretending he'd go to work, and come home same time every night. Brennan, so? Jim, so how far could he go every day and still get back at the same time every night? Look at this, and he opens up a map. He has to be somewhere within this radius. See, what I think is that during that time, he was setting himself up a new life, somewhere close by. So then later on, um, he's talking to a police lieutenant. Um, cause he's trying to, again, get information to Morrison cause he's trying to figure out who he is, where he is because he killed a sister. Lieutenant. Well, for starters, Morrison isn't his real name. Jim. What is it? Lieutenant. God knows. We don't. 
His personal history is falsified and his prints untraceable. We talked to a criminal psychologist who proposed a possibility you might be interested in. He said it was possible Morrison has done it before, married into an existing family, then something upsets his will, and he wiped them out. You knew him. What do you think? Jim. Well, I think it's better than a possibility. What do you plan to do about it? Lieutenant. For the moment, nothing. We don't have a single lead. The guy is smart. We won't have anything to go on unless he does it again. So then again, um, Jim's, again, trying to figure this out. He wants answers, and he's talking to um, someone else about Jerry because he's trying to get the names of, like, recently divorced women within this area, and I never got the guy's name, so I'm just going to call him Guy. Jim. Just listen to me for a second. What I'm saying is, I think this guy just married again to a divorcee with kids, a widow. I know him. This guy cannot live without a family. Now you gotta help me. Guy, I don't have time. Jim, come on, listen. All I'm asking are for copies of the marriage certificates for the last year. Now how much time is that gonna take? Guy, more time than I got or care to spare. Come back in a couple of weeks when we're not so busy. Jim, I need them now. Guy, goodbye. So Jim actually figures out the pattern, um, like how Jerry quits his job, then went out every day somewhere close by, establishing this new identity, new life, and, you know, getting a new job and looking for his next family. Jerry looks for single moms with children, you know, divorced or widowed moms. He preys on vulnerable women. Jim finds out that Jerry has been doing this for a long time, you know, marrying into families and killing them when they disappoint him. Jim also figures out that Jerry, you know, must be, you know, married again because he's the one who figures out that Jerry cannot go long without having a family. So Jim actually is the one who really pieces everything together and figures out, like, the whole thing of like Jerry's plan and like what his routine and what he does marrying into a single parent family, which is the mom, either divorced or widowed, um, you know, changing his appearance. And then when they disappoint him, he plans on killing them. So three weeks before he plans on killing him, he quits his job and starts to establish a new life somewhere else. So again, like I mentioned earlier, Jerry's a perfectionist. He's narcissistic has some OCD, and is probably suffering from antisocial personality disorder. He finds vulnerable women, charms them, marries into their families, and when Jerry isn't happy with them, he murders them. But again, the question is why? So we get little pieces of Jerry's past during like his freakouts and when he's talking to Dr. B. You know, Jerry is obsessed with having this perfect ideal family because for me, what I'm kind of analyzing is I'm kind of assuming that he wasn't really raised by one. This idea, like ideal nuclear family, traditional family values. Most likely, from what I gather, and because of the victims he chooses, he was probably raised by a single mom, either divorced or, you know, never married or widowed, um, a strict mom. I get the feeling that was probably abusive in some way. Like, he wants order. He's always saying, all we need is a little order around here. Something he probably heard his mother say. Like, probably yelled this to him before, you know, she might have hurt him, giving her an excuse to why she's going to hurt him. Because there's no order in this house, you know. 
And she would probably say, like, you're a good boy. Your daddy's a little angel. You know, something something else we hear Jerry say during his little freakouts. You know, when she was probably trying to convince herself things were okay. Or, like, trying to justify, like, why she did what she did. Or maybe it was, like, her way of saying sorry to Jerry for hurting him. She'd be like, no, 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 you're a good boy. You're daddy's little angel. So... That's kind of, I hope that makes sense. Like, that's kind of the scenario I'm picturing with his mom and probably how he's raised. So for Jerry, he yearned for a family, you know, what he believes to be a true family, a father, a mother, and children. But he also has some traits from his mother buried within his psyche. You know, this I, you know he's got to have order, being a perfectionist, OCD, things need to be done a certain way. So Jerry wants the perfect family, something I feel is implied that he's never had growing up. You know, to me, he was most likely raised by a single mom, no father around. Um, She was strict, abusive, needed order, and he wants the opposite. He wants this family, you know, the mother, father, and children, traditional family values. So when the family, his family that he marries into, disappoints him or angers him, because they're showing their flaws, he snaps and murders them, and then goes to search for a new family, the next, quote, perfect family, a family, you know, by him marrying into them, he can make the perfect family. So I hope that all makes sense. Okay, so I'm going to move on to my reviews, and again, I'm just going to go over one, because again, it's, you know, time, um, all the time it takes to, you know, edit these things. So I'm trying to keep my show a little shorter. So I'm just going to go over one review. Pop Horror says, fundamentally, one might describe O'Quinn's character in The Stepfather as a serial killer, but it seems killing is not his primary aim. Rather, there's something about his perfectionism that shapes him. Cleverly, The Stepfather isn't just about the law catching up to him, although they are, but about how he unravels along the way. His past is obviously tortured and empty, and he craves normalcy. He just cannot experience. Things are always threatening to crumble if he cannot keep his current identity strong, straight, and it could all end in a single phone call if he mixes things up. So overall, this movie is a dark and creepy psychological horror about a father looking for the perfect family and will kill in order to achieve it. This movie, like, focuses on a man with antisocial personality disorder, as well as narcissism, being a perfectionist, who preys on vulnerable women by coming off as charming and stable. Jerry is what true evil looks like, a man with a dark past that actually makes the viewer ask, what happened to Jerry for him to turn out this way? Was he born with a psychopathic nature, or was he a product of his environment contributing to him becoming a sociopath? Either way, Terry O'Quinn nails his performance as Jerry. Most people know him as John Locke from the TV show Lost, but us horror fans love him as Jerry Blake from The Stepfather 1 and 2, not to mention he was also in the movie Silver Bullet. If you haven't seen this movie, you should. Pretty sure it's still on Shudder, and I know it was featured on an episode of The Last Drive-In. I mean, what better way to celebrate Father's Day than watching a man murder to achieve the perfect family? So I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thank you again for joining me here on Simple Sarah's Horror Menagerie. Again, I'm your host, Sarah Sin. Thank you for sticking around as I discuss horror history, psychology, and mental health within horror movies. Hope you enjoyed the show. Again, thank you for listening. And I just want to remind everybody that there's a horror movie out there 
for everyone to enjoy. So thank you.